Welcome to the Chew Club podcast number six with Ollie Stedman of Stornoway and Count Drachmar. Ollie talks about the start of Stornoway, signing a record deal, and the Stornoway farewell tour. He also goes into depth about his songwriting process and how he's taken influence from Zulu lullabies, Zulu war songs, and Maskanda guitar. I hope you enjoy the podcast. Ollie, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks, Johnny. Um, so, the, I'll start off with a kind of a, a relatively big thing that happened recently, the farewell tour for Stornoway. Yeah. How was that? Uh, well, that is uh, now four, four or five months ago, which uh, feels quite surreal. Um, th- we're, we're here in, the, in this garage where the second album was recorded and part of the third album, and it's still full of uh, old rider from the tour. <laughs> and... Um, yeah, all those bottles of tequila that no one else uh, actually <laughs> wanted to drink. I thought I'd take them home and uh, see if I can fuel some mad recording nights over the next couple of years. Uh, actually, the pint glass that I've just uh, oh, yeah. handed you, that was uh, another memento of the tour. Oh, wow. We had uh, after parties after each show, mm. and that one, that was from the London one in the Brewdog. Yeah, yeah. You can't leave uh, your after party without... Uh, a few well, taking some yeah. <laughs> would that end up Souvenirs. on yeah the, uh, the the gig goers windowsill maybe could be yeah, the collection absolutely of, yeah <laughs> the gig coma I don't <laughs> know but uh, yeah so h- how did that kind of all come about it seemed like a really amazing celebration almost well um, the decision to wrap up the band took a couple of years mm. uh, to arrive it was a whole like uh, scenario um, different factors uh, and band members having things happening in their lives outside the band that drew them away from Oxford and I was you know I, I, w- I moved to East London to uh, be involved in more music on that side and it took us so long to decide to do that and so long to um, work out how we were going to do it in a positive way that in the end the fact that there was a farewell tour at all was uh, I felt quite a uh, quite an amazing sort of uh, twist of fate. Uh, it, it almost looked like it was never going to happen. Really? Um, but in the end, um, we managed to put together, I think it was 15 shows, and play to uh, thousands of people around the UK, and loads of them were old fans who'd been there from the very first gigs and, and actually come to so many shows that, mm. you know, when they came up to talk to us afterwards... Uh, there was a lot to discuss and a lot of tears shed yeah, over yeah, the merch stand. Um, yeah, and it, to 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 get it to happen, I think was a, actually, in retrospect, a, a, a huge achievement because um, just because of the way things had been drifting apart. Um, but it, we managed to make something really positive out of it and give memories, uh, forge some new memories with those fans. And um, there's even. There's even recordings of a couple of the last gigs and footage of the last couple of gigs to still mix and still sort of find something oh, really? to do with. So it's not all totally wrapped up yet. Um, yeah, yeah. But yeah, all all that remains is to try and um, uh, preserve the memories of that very happy time. So that was just a really fantastic two weeks, uh, which took two years in the making. Yeah, yeah. And then straight after the Oxford show, I just uh, I had to sort of take a break and I went on went away for a few weeks, uh, disappeared mm. to basically process all of it. Yeah, yeah. And now I found myself back in Oxford, um, you know, making music, 
uh, gigging a bit with the Count Drachma stuff that I do. Yeah. And that that farewell tour was a great way to just close a chapter, mm. um, turn a page, and um, you know refresh a little bit. Yeah. Uh, and when you when going back to the start of Stornoway and kind of the the al- the first album. How long did it take to get into a position where you thought this is the time to make an album? How long were you guys together? Um, 2005 to um, I think the first EP that we made was yeah actually at the very beginning within mm. within months of starting me and Brian and John had put together a a bunch of basically demos that we were then handing out to pubs and sending to blogs. And that led to the first gigs, the first bit of business. But then for the next six years, that's all we really did. We made mm. little demo EPs, handed them out uh, often for free, and played uh, loads of shows and eventually uh, wound up the sort of the size of those shows and the momentum of those shows. So after five, maybe six years, we'd actually played every venue in Oxford and we'd, we seemed to have played to everyone. And the people who enjoyed it were sticking around and coming to more and more gigs. But it took those five or six years at the beginning before anything really happened. And then uh, a label came along, a publisher came along, and uh, we actually released a proper album. But yeah. because we'd only started with the very like informal idea in mind that we were just making demos for fun and gigging for fun, it seemed like that was this total dream come true, mm. um, unexpected twist of fate having the having a, a record deal yeah and yeah. Uh, almost still can't really believe that it took place so that was 2010 and then for six years we we uh, we were like doing it professionally yeah so 12 years all in all but like half of that time was just totally for fun and yeah, the other yeah. half was um, kind of a surreal uh, you know, you're doing this. Uh, you're doing your dream job. Yeah, um, which I've heard doesn't look so great when you're trying to get car insurance as a professional <laughs> yeah, musician. I have, I've been there. I've been in the, <laughs> you know, the mortgage appointments and the insurance things. Um, <laughs> yeah, musicians not one, what you want to be writing. <laughs> That's why I've kind of moved away in a little bit, uh, a little bit to um, from performing. Mm. Moved away f- to an extent from performing to. Uh, more of a tech existence so now I can write on my form as data scientist yeah it always looks very uh, yeah, absolutely. reliable you know, I've become a reliable uh, geek that's got to go to the other end so yeah the first album was on 4AD um, Beachcomber's Windowsill went to number 14 in the album charts hmm. so that like I didn't know that until I was researching last night that it charted so high like yeah that's that's awesome like yeah. when that did was that kind of not an expectation but I know that from only obviously reading books about kind of you know Kim Gordon or something you know that, that when you're talking to labels and they, they've got a bit of hype and they're like yeah you you guys are the best thing you're going to be as big as like Bon Jovi no <laughs> but did did you was it kind of very unexpected was there a bit of yeah we might this might do quite well and um, I struggle to understand what any label saw in us and uh, what, what the potential of the band was because we really were just like this hobby project for a number of years and did it for fun when 4AD came along 
and and a couple of other labels, and there was like a bit of a bidding war, and it got really uh, it got kind of awkward because we seemed to be to be wanted by a few different people. Mm. We were we just didn't really know what to do with that. Um, picked the label we liked best, and then um, yeah, it seemed to just unfold quite naturally. And I think it was the momentum of all the sort of the work that we'd put in uh, in those first unsigned years. Mm. But I don't think we, any of us realized, label included, uh, how much that work would pay off because, uh, yeah, everyone was totally shocked when the Wednesday of that charting week came through and they give you the midweek position. I think we got to number eight or something, uh, and, you know, on the total on the UK chart. And wow. everyone's like, wow, <coughs> where did that come from? Yeah. It was in the days before any of these pre-order campaigns, pledge music campaigns, which often really helped to bolster a p- position. So we knew that it was just total sort of, uh, it was it was organic sales um, from fans. And we were there, I think it was the same week that Total Life Forever came out and a few other albums of like contemporaries that I really respected. Mm. And um, we didn't really know what to make of it. <coughs> But in the end, yeah, it was like number 14, silver record, all this crazy stuff happened. And then that led to this huge tour in Germany, uh, all around Europe and America, going to Australia the following year. But then just in that time, so 2010 to where we are now, 2017, things things changed so much. So I've now... Just you know, I think I heard yesterday that Public Service Broadcasting got a four, number four chart position mm. for their album, and it wrapped up in there are like streaming, uh, streaming points, uh, radio airplay, mm. all this stuff that contributes to your chart position, and you know now the industry is talking about changing the way they calculate the chart position because of Ed Sheeran getting nine positions out of the top ten yeah. a couple of months ago. Um, so all these things are in flux all the time and I reckon maybe we just we came at the right kind of time for that Um, it may have been that our sales were like constituted from just the right number of things to get us a nice high position you know but um, I don't know in in, in the end we can just walk away and say great we had number 14 the next couple of albums were all kind of up there as well I think in the 20s but um yeah, you mentioned. I feel very fortunate to have had that. You mentioned everything about why that might, why the album might have charted at fourteen, other than it being a really <laughs> good album. Well, yeah, in if you sort of zoom out of that album and look at how it was made over the six years, some of those recordings were things from the very first moments of the band, mm. Boats and Trains. Parts of that, uh, the the mix that was released. That was like the first things we ever put down on on uh, a multi-track recorder, um, and it, yeah, it just took ages and ages to make. And then other tracks like "Saw You Blink" had been re-recorded and redone with a professional engineer, um, and it's a real hodgepodge, basically, of all mm. these different approaches to the studio, all these different moods. And I remember thinking at the time that albums are just these snapshots of songs. And on that album, it truly is like this this 
Beachcomber's windowsill of all these different moods and moments, mm. and each song is like a snapshot of um, how the band felt on a certain day back in 2009, when uh, you know we're writing a particular tune or uh, singing through um, singing through underpants as a as a sort of makeshift <laughs> pop shield <laughs> uh, when doing Battery Human or uh, recording on terribly out of tune instruments. Um, each song had a totally different approach to it, and I guess that it's not the most hi-fi album. But in the end, I think that's what some people found in it. They, it was maybe quite refreshing from what the other kind of stuff you were hearing at that time. Yeah, I think um, when you kind of but like take out the idea of trying to be, or yeah, the shiny polished end yeah. result is less there, and more the character and the time of the place is there. That that's my favorite albums. I think. Um, yeah, just nuances and things like that. It's, yeah. just, it's kind of like the the almost the punk attitude of things that, that kind of bleeds through, I guess. Um, that's amazing. And how how did the songwriting come about? So did Brian come with an idea? Did you all kind of have some ideas um, and just kind of play it out, just get into a room? Uh, Brian's definitely the principal songwriter for the group, and uh, it was his... It was all his sort of repertoire, his stuff that he'd created that was inspiring us all to get together and mm. do something. Um, but we, yeah, we would come to the studio having had a, a demo from him, something with lyrics and a melody and some chords, and then we'd sit there for days. Every song would take, I don't know, if you if you totted up all the hours, you know, it's like a full-time month of, uh, of work to arrange those songs. Mm. And this is the room where poor Rob would be put through uh, as paces we'd all just chip in and say oh can you do that instead of the rack tom there can you do like four hits on the hi-hat <laughs> um, and it's yeah it took a huge amount of uh, galvanizing uh, our imaginations around each track it, around the kernel of the idea that Brian had brought mm. um, so quite collaborative and I've taken that into other projects so with Count Drachma I basically uh, I can I can bring the the seed of an idea into the group, but then it's up to the session musicians to just make it happen. Yeah. On stage, and um, I'm constantly amazed at the musicians around me and how they're able to just work their magic. You know. Yeah. It's, I think music, except in very rare instances uh, where you have truly genius solo artists, it's just a collaboration. Yeah. It has to be. Yeah. Yeah. Especially in the studio. Yeah. yeah, it's a great way to work. I feel like um, Count Drachmar definitely has that ethos about it. From the first time I saw Count Drachmar, I think at the boat shed in London. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it, it it was really refreshing because it was at a time that I was listening to, oh, I'd been to America a couple of times and seen that the people in the audience were a little bit looser. And then from being kind of uh, at a lot of gigs in Oxford and seeing a lot of chin stroking and at your best you got moshing and things yeah. for seeing In Me at the Zodiac or yeah. whatever. But it was a really refreshing side to um, an Oxford-based band that perhaps that I hadn't seen before and really um, uh, was kind of a pivot between when I was trying to write and always like anxious about writing really serious music and going hey it's all about fun isn't it really mm, yeah um, and I really get that from Count Drachma mm. and that's why yeah I, I think it's amazing well it's um, one of the reasons it's able to be quite carefree and fun uh, is that all the music is in another language and 
I'm removed from the like the responsibility of having to say something meaningful to the crowd because um, if they don't speak the language, then all they've got to go on is the sound, mm. the the melodies and the beat. So then it's just my responsibility to actually entertain rather than give anything poetic. And then in between songs, I'm able to explain to them, oh, that's what the, this is what that song meant, or here's a quick phrase I can sort of teach you a phrase in another language and people respond well to that because it's a bit like a fun day out uh, almost you know learning something that you never thought you were going to learn yeah yeah um, still have yet to encounter a genuine Zulu speaker in uh, an audience really? um, so we've got nothing to go on <laughs> go by oh, it's, yeah it's really <laughs> difficult uh, if I'm gigging on the festival circuit in England um, the the you know you, you're never going to find any Zulu music fans mm. at the gigs uh, most Zulu people are concentrated in this tiny strip of land in South Africa, thousands of miles away, and they 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 listen to their music there, and it's a very tight knit community, and yeah, there's uh, it's very rare to find um, Zulu music fans, especially in London where the band is gigging most often, but. Uh, but the thing that's universal to all audiences is the beat and the rhythm mm, and mm. people can really get into that and dance to it mm. without having to know the language yeah do, do you think perhaps although there's perhaps not um, any Zulu music fans yet <laughs> in London or <laughs> you know the UK um, perhaps um, but there are fans of people there are fans of music that all be stuff that they haven't heard before so I recently went to Tandem Festival and saw yeah. so many different styles like yeah. under one roof and things and it's, it's a, a want to like a I really don't like the idea that um, world music is a kind of genre because it seems a bit unfair and crass yeah. um, because and yeah but um, just a kind of kind of other folk music I guess mm. you know uh, do you think um, do you see that as your audience? People that are willing to dance and want to see it. Yeah. It's obviously a connection that they're feeling. There's, a, there's an open-mindedness that's needed to, uh, to come along, stand outside in a field, a uh, potentially muddy field, and watch music that you don't uh, know much about. Mm. I think that's what I really enjoy about festivals like Tandem, uh, Womad, Cambridge mm. Folk, which we're playing later this month. Uh, even truck festival still has elements of that uh, uh, people being open-minded and and open to seeing something new yeah Glastonbury's probably where that all sort of has been polished and made into a really great thing uh, 200,000 people coming in just uh, taking the music as it comes yeah but actually with Stornoway we also played very commercial festivals where unless you were a known entity the record in the charts and on the radio none of the kids at those festivals V festivals maybe uh, Witchwood might be an example mm. will come up to the main stage and see you because they might not recognise the name yeah. and uh, actually there's there's, lo there's loads of other stuff to do at the festivals um, so but with Count Drachma it seems that I'm able to access the kind of festivals the kind of promoters where uh, people are open-minded and they're just there to have a dance outside yeah. the best gig we've, the most fun gig we've had it was festival number 6 2016 where the Nest Collective in London 
uh, folk promoter had invited us out to play in Port Marion festival number six and they managed to put on despite the craziest sort of cyclonic storm conditions I'd yeah. seen they managed to keep their stage uh, standing <laughs> and they we played at sort of 3am and managed to get all these really disheveled music fans who'd been standing in the mud managed to get them to lift their feet and um, jump around and, yeah. and dance and it was just a real fun evening and we ended up sort of uh, sleeping on the beach and staying up late and uh, you know driving home completely shattered on Monday morning but yeah. all for the sake of entertaining people I think that's what Count Drachma is all about it's just making people dance and be happy yeah yeah escape as well yeah. like yeah. escapism so how how do you go about the actual songwriting or the part that you you know the, the idea stage for yeah. Count Drachma how, how does it formulate do you kind of come up with um a rhythm or a, a chord progression or do you you know translate something into zulu that you think might work i know that you used a couple of nursery rhymes yeah i, I think still the majority of the count Drachmas set uh when we're playing live is uh old traditional songs uh, lullabies uh dance or war songs protest mm. songs and these are things that have been heard in the hills of Zululand for centuries. Mm. Um, I, I often go back there to refresh uh, by meeting local musicians and say, you know, what's the latest tunes? How's the latest guitar style evolving? Yeah. So I keep in touch with the, the uh, ancient music that's been made there. But then a growing proportion of the set is now originals and translations. Um, so whether I'm taking a Californian band, uh, you know, just any old sort of indie band whose music I like and actually translating their lyrics and then letting them know about it on Facebook and not getting yeah. uh, and kind of confusing them because it's quite a weird thing to have your music translated into, uh, into a, uh, a very niche language. <laughs> um, or if I'm totally writing from scratch, it'll be a product of like reflecting as you would before you write a song in English, you're coming up with a little uh, turn of phrase or an interesting combination of words and then sitting down and extending that idea uh, either in Zulu or in English first and then translating it. It's a very rich experience writing in another language mm. because occasionally you come up against a, a piece of vocabulary you're missing so you need to maybe look up a word in a dictionary and then that leads you to look up the word next to it and think, oh, I could go yeah. on a whole tangential storyline here so the songs are often quite winding and um, poetic I find mm. Zulu is a very ambiguous language because there's you can say a lot of things in a lot of different ways mm. it's very hard to actually be precise with your imagery so it's very it's very rich and very enjoyable experience writing in that language and then arranging it is a whole different um, different story I sit down and with one with the guitar tuned in this particular Mascanda tuning. Oh wow! Um, and the thumb picks for, for the uh, guitar yeah. uh, shredders out there. What's oh, the yeah. tuning? <laughs> so it's just standard tuning, but the top string is D. So it's E A D G B D, and okay. then combining that with a, a harmonica is my way of approximating 
some of the sounds you get in Zululand. You have people playing um, concertinas, occasionally violins. Uh, so those kind of droning sounds and all the choral sort of uh, stuff that happens in that southern African music, I try and mimic that on a harmonica. And then at the same time, the harmonica brings in a sort of Neil Young, Bob Dylan feel to it. Mm. So it can be quite wistful. So with the guitar and the harmonica and my sheet of, you know, approximate translations, I sit there and try and be as authentic as I can. I'll always do an intro, which is quite loosely based around um, a, a, a riff or a, a theme. And then I'll go into a groove and the groove has to be in... 10-4 or 6-8 uh, but if it's 6-8 it fights with 3-4 yeah. there's all these intricate time signatures um, and once you've played that groove for uh, maybe uh, a minute or so you can then begin a verse Yeah. and the verses always have to have a particular uh, rhyming scheme uh, a rhythm to the vocals a chord sequence if you're going to be doing Maskanda music it's it's um it's important to stick to very few chords and it has to be quite uh, driving, insistent music mm. because so much of it is about the rhythm. So this whole arrangement of any counteracting tune takes a long time and is very rich. Yeah. Um, and I in the end, if I'm happy with an arrangement, it's um, it's taken a lot of work. So then I yeah. end up playing that song all the time. And yeah. uh, I think people really their ears prick up when they hear such unusual time signatures and uh it it the having to put that much work in that really does pay off because it's a rich songwriting experience rich arrangement yeah, experience yeah. and the the listening experience is uh very rich as well for the audience yeah that's 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 good to get a, a lot of background I, I think um i find with uh songwriting i find that there's a little period of time where I don't have enough time in the morning before I'm going to work yeah. <laughs> and that is my best songwriting yes. and I've been late for work <laughs> um, yeah. only by a few minutes because I'm like oh, I just need to record this bit Absolutely. or something yeah. do you, is yours kind of a spontaneous like oh I've had an idea or do you go right Sunday afternoon I'm going to no write way. I can't I can't plan it No. Um, I'm, I'm a serial planner I've got pin boards and spreadsheets for every aspect of my life yeah uh, whether it's music or you know that car insurance that you're chasing as a musician <laughs> or whatever it is I'm I've I try to be very organized because I am quite disorganized and I'm trying to work on that but for songwriting I don't think it's something you can structure unless you're working in a team maybe with a producer mm. and with 10 other songwriters around a table it's just something that has to come uh, naturally so I find it's taken a lot of work to get to the point where I can have an emotion or a picture arrive in my brain and mm. then have the ability to sit down there and then drop everything and articulate it on on a page. The kind of a question that I've asked every, in every podcast is is why do you write songs? Um, that's a very deep question. Um, that's why we're here. <laughs> yeah. I think the answer to that question is something that would change as someone grows and develops as a songwriter mm. it might be that your answer to why do you write music is more honest when you're writing your first 10 songs than later in life when you're writing with the experience of having written your first thousand songs mm. um, 
I think some of the most honest songwriters are those who are just starting out and they don't really know what they're doing. Yeah. And they're just inspired by something nameless inside them. Uh, it arrives from some mysterious place and has to come out and they don't even have the ability to articulate it yet, but yeah, they're doing yeah. their best and they're sort of shutting out the rest of the world in order to satisfy this drive inside them. And uh, of it, I think for all of us songwriters, when you get to, uh, when, even when you get to the stage of being write, being able to write quickly or write accurately and and with intent, you're always kind of going back to the first handful of songs you wrote and you're always yeah secretly quite proud of those and mm. saying there was something mysterious there driving that song I don't know what it was but each song is a record of a feeling and the thing that ins at the moment inspires me to write is that desperate need to actually preserve the thoughts and the feelings that I'm having mm. if I wake up from some intense dream or a thought strikes me at mid-afternoon in the middle of uh, a mundane uh, existence then that's something quite fantastic and I need to be able to write that down preserve it just the feeling of having felt it and if I can um, if I could take a photo of it I would or if I could make a film of this strange thought that came to me I would but actually the only way is to write music and whether that's instrumental music or usually the best way is a song yeah. as you can articulate using words and none of us ever seem to score you, you score that feeling 100% and preserve exactly what we wanted to say. Mm. But um, the most we can do is struggle to do it uh, by writing a three-minute uh, anthem to ourselves. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think um, yeah, Benjamin Gibbard of Death Cab for Cutie said that he, cause, uh, yeah, he, he wrote s some songs, like early, album, um, early albums, and they were quite descriptive of people in his life. Um, I think particularly a relationship that he was having, and he loved the idea or the way that he could, the way that he could describe his his relationship, and you know the affections he had for a particular woman. You know that can be translated to anyone listening to it. A photo perhaps doesn't quite do that. And he was like, you know, maybe she wasn't the most, you know, the mm. the most. Uh, beautiful person on photo or whatever but in a in a in a song you can really just whether it's a female or whether it's a, a an amazing stroll through a, a south walian beach or something yeah. i don't know one of the aspects of a song uh is that by its nature it's a temporal thing it's three minutes long or seven minutes long it's something that tells a story over a number of uh you know blocks of time so unlike a painting or a uh, photo or uh, a nice visual experience which happens instantly and then you it, you don't really explore it over time mm. maybe your eye explores a little bit but on, on a song you're sitting down or driving in your car or rocking out at a festival and you're you're held there for four minutes five minutes six minutes by the magic of uh, your ears uh, being treated to something um mm something strange so it's about the story and I think one of the things that songwriters do agree on is that is that songs um, are the best kind of songs are stories yeah they tell something that happens over a sequence of events 
involving characters and people change over the course of the story just as the listener changes mm, mm. in the course of listening to that song. Uh, maybe the theme is just about human change by, by, by accessing these by precious minutes of music. Uh, we all change, and, uh, but do we really change? But, um, <laughs> we are absenting ourselves. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah that's okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I um, I'll take a slightly different track to yeah. uh, the first time I saw Storm. Just away. add one thing on that. Yeah, of course. This is your time. <laughs> I, I, I remember growing up in South Africa, uh, having listened to the music that now inspires me to do Count Drachma stuff, all the uh, Zulu music, the fusion music of South Africa, and up till the age of 13, that's pretty much what I had heard. I honestly couldn't tell you at that age who the Beatles were, uh, mm. much about Elton John, except that he'd done a couple of Lion King songs, and, and I was, I'd been... I'd been led to buy his best of at that point. Maybe Tina Turner's uh, James Bond Goldeneye theme. That was pretty much <laughs> the only like uh, Western music I would say that I'd heard. And then at the age of 13, 14, um, a Pink Floyd album fell into my hands. Um, my mum had brought that back from her travels to, uh, to Italy. And I found myself... They're listening in the dead of night to this this uh, the Echoes album, best of, and it totally transformed my um, my like view on the world because um, these sounds that the band had made were telling me a story, and I would sit there through the fifty minute side of each of each side of the record uh, with headphones on, full blast in the middle of the night, and trying to understand why someone would make that kind of music why someone would tell that those stories mm. over such a an extended period these were longer recordings than anything i'd ever heard before yeah and i felt myself changing so i think the whole theme behind music and songwriting is just people growing and changing and occasionally you can find that you put a record on and the next day you are, are a different person yeah and you can think back on who you were before you heard it and they're a different they're two different sort of universes. And then that in itself, that change and growth is a great topic for songwriting and you can you can write about how yeah, you, your life uh, evolves. Yeah. It's a great subject for writing some of the most inspiring stuff, I think. Um, so maybe that's a, like a bit of a theme in it. It's, it's about people changing and evolving yeah, yeah. through listening to each other's music. That's really interesting because I, I can't remember the time but it was when I was quite young and I remember the first change that happened uh, where I was listening to where my mum put on Dionne Warwick Walk On By oh, yeah. and that was the first time that I'd connected with music in a way of sorrow and being like she is like the, wet, the, the haunting kind of nature and the delicate voice that she has it was just kind of a real turning point and then later on, um, hearing, this is something else that comes up in every podcast, but um, hearing a band on MTV, uh, yeah. m my dad got Sky for us. And um, I heard I heard this song and I ran into my dad and was like, Dad, the future of music is coming, it's here. And it was like this, this moment. And I remember very, very vividly of, I think I might have been 10 or 11. And I, I just, just like, there's this band called Smells Like Teen Spirit and their song Nirvana is incredible. <laughs> and he's like, 
I've got so much to tell you. He's like, I've got the album. The band is Nirvana. <laughs> the song is Smells Like Teen Spirit. But that was a real shift. That was like yeah. a kind of connection and stuff. I'd been playing a little bit of grade one piano up until then. Okay. Um, and that was like, yeah, bass guitar. Hello, here we go. You know, yeah. rock music from yeah. the start. Um, that's really interesting. I might have to have a think about that later yeah, on. How, and explore. The, how, and how hearing a new song for the first time can totally tr- transform you as a human. Yeah. Um, I've actually moved into teaching guitar quite recently. A lot of people seem to want to learn Maskanda, South African mm. guitar, and found other students who just want to learn guitar in general, or, or other instruments, or production. So I'm having a great little adventure this year in actually offering tuition. Mm. Um, and the thing that all my students have in common is that they're fascinated by Nirvana, mm. uh, classic guitar stuff like uh, Blackbird by the Beatles. Mm. Um, these these are pieces that seem to transform them, so mm. transform people when they hear them for the first time. And if I had to draw up a list of like the 50 songs that students request uh, to learn or people request to hear about because they, they all know these songs, you know, there's something common in, in all those songs is that they just leap out the radio at you or leap out yeah. the MTV screen at you <laughs> and you're a different person after you've, after you've heard them. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Bear in mind, the uh, when I heard Smells Like Teen Spirit, it was about four years after Kurt yeah. Cobain. Had, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, it, talking about first times, the first time I saw a band walk into the audience completely acoustically uh-huh. was um, Storn Away at Fat Lil's in Whitney. Okay. And yeah. um, <laughs> I've seen it done a number of times since, yes. but that was uh, like the first time and it, it was something else it was it was really amazing how did that idea come about was it did you see someone else do it was it purely like oh. we should do this completely acoustically because it's a very impactful thing yeah <laughs> i'm i'm uh, 99% sure that i'd never seen anyone do it i mean maybe i have forgotten seeing someone do it but uh we were just we were kind of being silly we thought uh well let's just actually annoy people by getting off stage yeah. and it'll be really inconvenient for them and they, it won't be plugged in so they won't even be able to hear us won't that be funny so it was kind of an annoyance tactic Yeah, leapt out onto the tables of the Jericho and there were enough people that it didn't it wasn't too awkward and they actually gathered round and uh, it worked quite well Yeah, and it got a, a good round of applause and we ended up I think playing the rest of the set on the tables really? Um, yeah. I think when we when we got up and uh, left the stage and went into the crowd each of those times it was done for for the reason of wanting to include people more closely and feel more at a level with everyone else in the room mm. I think that's what inspired it along with this kind of silliness that we thought oh this will just be kind of hilarious and counterintuitive because mm. you pay thousands of pounds for the amplification and then if you just switch it off you know that's kind of uh, well it's just a bit of a joke and when we did it uh, those were the reasons and then over the years yeah I started noticing a lot of other groups doing it one of my favourite um, one of my favourite groups who, who were doing that was Spring Offensive yeah. they would get into the crowd and uh, like you'd have people in the tightest circle because their gigs were so packed and so yeah. emotional people would be right there touching the band as they played in the round and weeping the whole crowd would yeah. be weeping because th- those, those guys used to do such intensely emotional performances yeah 
and then it's maybe it's yeah it's become a, almost a staple of gigs now but I don't know if Stornoway were, were the originators of it it's like when you hear a word for the first time hear a new word or you hear a song for the first time and you suddenly start hearing that word or that song all over the place yeah. it's like wow where is this been? <laughs> suddenly really popular word or, or experience and it's almost like you can convince yourself that you were, you were the first one to come up with that word or start using it and then everyone around you started copying you yeah um, but I'm sure that Stornoway weren't the first um, touching on uh, yeah, Spring Offensive um, and Oxford Music but um, Spring Offensive uh, specifically I think when they walked out into the crowd I always found it slightly difficult because of knowing them and mm. um, them a couple of them uh, Matt and well actually all of them uh, more or less are quite tall so I found that like I couldn't look at them in the eyes because I knew them so I kind of drifted down their body and I was like I couldn't look at them and it, it was just kind of I was always looking at Matt's bum <laughs> um, but yeah Spring Offensive that was that was a that was a, a time that was that was an amazing band um, were you there at the the last gig in London? Yes, both of their last shows. And actually, in the in London one, I was involved running the door. And oh, I, I would have. Oh, sorry for forgetting <laughs> that because I would have walked past. But I, it was one of the hottest me. gigs I've ever been to. I think it, it was in like October time, so it wasn't because of the weather. But mm. the fact that they had picked this underground sort of sweat box completely uh, black yeah Comple- no ventilation <laughs> I don't think the place had been running gigs for that long because the the owner seemed to be quite shocked at the number of people like they'd never packed it that much before yeah and it was my job to run up and down the stairs with a, a jug of ice water pouring cups of uh, water to get people to, to stop fainting oh really <laughs> yeah um, it was quite an emotional night quite a late night and then remember uh, and just hang out with everyone afterwards and uh, a lot of tears were shed and uh, a lot of memories were recalled and memories were formed uh, because of the um, yeah the intense f- shared feeling that people had that night you know, yeah. this is the end of an era yeah certainly I was standing I was with um, John Spira yeah um, and uh, we kind of just looked at each other about three songs in and they were they were on fire. They were absolutely killing it, and we were just like, "We're never going to hear these songs live again." It's yeah. just like, "Oh God, this is, <laughs> this is not what we want." Yeah. <laughs> like, as friends slash fans slash yeah. you know you know. I think going through that gig and those that times with Spring Offensive, I never really anticipated that happening to Stornoway, and um, it's it's just uh, going through the the farewell stages mm. of a group. It's it's one of the most surreal experiences um you yeah you realize this is the last uh last time i'll be turning off that junction to get to that to that venue to play a gig yeah. in this in this tour bus that'll be the last time I, i'm actually plugging in a lead or conducting a sound check uh playing these songs yeah and it's the kind of the slightly mundane stuff that uh, actually hits you hardest and uh, you would you know wake up the next morning having had a really fun gig and a, and a party but actually the stuff that's going to be missing is the 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 surrounding um, aspects of it, the touring with your mates. And so after the first album, obviously, thing uh, for Stornoway, uh, things kind of start like picked up quite a lot, as you say, touring in Australia and things. Mm. Was there? Did you feel any pressure with the second or third album of kind of? Well, this is unexpected. We've got ourselves into a really good position. Um, you know, before 
with this album it was all kind of like let's get together we want to make music we want to connect yeah. and things and then you were thrown into yeah. we've got fans in australia like <laughs> and yeah. america and yeah the well this studio was built for the second album to be recorded in and um we f- certainly found ourselves with yeah a bit of a time scale problem because no one had really explained to us that it's uh the the time sensitive nature of suddenly being a signed band you've got deadlines mm. and budgets that you have to stick to if you want to keep uh your team around you mm. um because a label is like a really justifiable thing it's a big um organized group of talented minds trying to make music happen you mm. know, just it's just like a band but on a bigger scale um and in order to sort of play ball with with um with all these entities around you, labels and publishers, you need to know your timescales and what you've got to play with. But I think we were very naive. We had just done it as a hobby for six, seven years by that point. And building this studio, we thought, okay, we're gonna get in here, put some carpet on the walls, and have a million cups of tea and make an album over three, maybe four years. We'll just do it on our own terms, yeah. uh, using our own, uh, very <coughs> humble multi-track recorders, and uh, homemade instruments and we basically uh, indulged mm. and then when it came time to deliver that album we we felt very proud of the fact that we'd mixed it and got it to this really advanced stage done all the artwork ourselves but it turns out that actually if you do stuff just on your own terms it's not really that suitable I think all music needs to be a collaborative effort mm. so um, there was a bit of a mismatch there between what we had come up with, this really homespun, quite humble, uh, almost repeat of the first album, we felt it was very folksy. Yeah. Uh, and what the expectations had grown to be, I think uh, lots of people were seeking a bigger, uh, more embracing kind of album. So there was a bit of a, uh, a confusion there, and but the fans loved it, and we, we, d- we managed to tour for years based on that second album. Yeah and really have a great time. There's some sort of anthemic tunes that people then requested years down the line that they wanted to hear from the second album. Um, But for me, the second one is really a record of quite a naive couple of winters that we spent sitting in here, drinking all the tea in the world and um, just whiling away the time uh, on our own terms when perhaps we could have been out there uh, being a bit more collaborative, working with great producers from the label and... It's just inter- it's in- interesting what you um, what you instinctively go for as a musician. As yeah. a musician, um, works on your first album, but sometimes it, it's important to realize like the expectations on you mm-hmm. once you've once you've um, know, once you've uh, gone made a start on the the long road of being a signed band. It's um, it has to be collaborative. Yeah, there yeah. Lo- there's a lot of people's careers at stake and a lot of money and time at stake, and um, it's it's kind of selfish to just do it on your own terms. So, I've been lucky enough to see both sides of that. Um, because on the third album, we eventually went for a hugely collaborative uh, approach. We had the Pledge Music campaign. Yeah, yeah. Experienced producers, uh, lots and lots of session players, and that led to yeah, even more. Uh, sort of joyful years of touring but uh, across three albums we've had like all these totally disparate approaches and um, 
Yeah, quite a story to tell. Yeah. Maybe that'll be the book, the autobiography. Oh, yeah. Just working on the second draft of that at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> we, I was in a band um, quite a while ago um, when we were kind of teenagers, and we, we wanted to be more famous for an autobiography that had a CD <laughs> attached to our music. <laughs> but, um, okay, well... That's good. Yeah, it's going. It's going good. I probably have a little bit of a merge of things. Yeah, so much. Sorry, I talk a lot. No, no, it's amazing. <laughs> uh, there's still a couple of questions. I'll okay. obviously edit this bit out. Um, okay. So, what I've noticed about uh, your name on the records that it is, there's mm. a lot of instruments that you personally play. Mm. Do you have a default instrument? And when you have ideas of thing or of songs do you like kind of just try different things out or you're like that needs clarinet or that mm. needs this in the context of stornoway it's it's the case that we all played so many uh, different instruments that we could sort of get together in this room and think what ideally in some kind of imagined version of it would suit this song best is it a woodwind sound? Maybe it's a strange percussive sound, which we can't quite hear totally, but you can kind of imagine the gist of it. And you can basically turn to any of the instruments in this room. There's about a thousand strings across all the instruments <laughs> in this room, like 50 drum skins. Yeah. Uh, you can turn and reach for something and play it to a vaguely competent level and, and sort of jam the ideas out. I think that's where we had proudly got to by the by the stage of the second album um we were able to play on on many different instruments so from the saw to the mandolin and the koto um but if an idea comes to me as a songwriter um i'll grab the guitar mm. first of all that's that's become my instrument now uh with count drachma as a project based around the guitar the guitar has been something that i've become much more familiar with than mm. any other instrument uh, out of necessity so I'll sit down with the guitar and press record on GarageBand and I'll just play something whatever comes to the fingers without you know I tried to bypass the brain and just go straight to the muscle instinct uh, and what comes out is riffs or strange chords or weird rhythms that don't make much sense but then you press stop on the tape and you listen back and you think okay I don't know where that came from but now I can layer some other stuff on it or redo it now that I understand what it's trying to tell me mm. I find I can do that with the guitar but although I can competently sort of jam along and record parts on other instruments, brass, woodwind drums I, I can never really write from those instruments, it's either got to be guitar or piano mm. because it has to be the kind of thing where you can sit down and just from muscle instinct with no brain input uh, unleash something and you don't know where it comes from, don't know what it's trying to say to you until you've explored it. Um, and really, yeah, guitar and piano seems to be where that's at. Um, uh, yeah. Cool. And, uh, yeah, what's next for Count Drachma? What's, what's in the pipeline? I keep telling folks that I want to record, and I am desperate to record for Count Drachma. I have two and a half albums of songs ready to go 
um, which is you know where you should be if you've been gigging a project for five or six years now and having really great, really kind festival audiences to test material on. Yeah, um, and very kind collaborative players uh, joining in with me on stage. But the most difficult thing is that it is technically still a solo project. It's um, it's just me and the whatever drive I find I have at the end of uh, the working day to sit down and think, okay, how how do I actually turn this project into something of consequence? So I'm desperate to record, but I need to find um, the right kind of the right summer. I need to, like the right season in which to record, or I need to provide the right context in which to develop the snapshots that make up an album an mm. album is just an, uh, like a photo album it's just a series of snapshots and I want to snap those shots in exactly the right uh, situation I need the studio to be right and the producer to be kind and collaborative yeah yeah. Um, so at some point soon if I can just find the right uh, situation uh, to record okay, Countrackman is going to record and then I'll be able to go to the thousands of people who've now seen us. This has been a very yeah. busy, prolific gigging band. It's just been basically a live band. There's never been any recordings. And I'll be able to go back to all those people who I've kept in touch with and say, okay, finally the time has come. We have some recordings. Yeah. Grab them and uh, I'll see you on the road soon. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, you know, an album at some point and then just another six years of gigging. That yeah. would be, uh, that would suit me. Sounds yeah, great. Down to the ground because um, it's just about entertaining and making people happy. That's what motivates Count Drachma. Well, you definitely do that. And I think the honesty behind, like the honesty coming from you, you can see. And it definitely translates into the audience that I've seen at Count Drachma gigs. Oh, and um, yeah, we haven't really touched on Tigmas at all, oh, which yeah, is yeah. a huge part of <laughs> your life. Thing. Well, that's where I mentioned becoming a data scientist. Um, and I mentioned the working day. Um, that's uh, what my, my existence has sort of transformed from being a touring musician and songwriter into basically sitting there trying to help as many other musicians as I can and as many venues and promoters and agents as I can I really immerse myself in the industry to other people's benefit if I can uh, by employing technology. Mm. So I sit, sit down each day with a, a huge pipeline of ideas that I've come up with um, along with Tom who runs the company with me and we're trying to basically make things better in music make l things more transparent and profitable and happy for musicians hmm. and um, so that's a kind of a, it's, it's convenient to have that project going and to be able to call myself a data scientist yeah. and uh, it pays me something that then I can take back into music and test it on the road so Count Drachma is the perfect testing place for the ideas that Tigmas is coming up with. Tigmas had his first gig in Italy oh, in wow. October last year. A band logged onto the platform and found themselves a venue and clicked through and planned themselves a gig. Uh, and the gig went like clockwork and everyone was happy. Brilliant. So comparing that to the kind of admin you would normally have to do to put on a gig uh, across the world. Yeah. I think that's what we're, we're trying to uh, build on. Yeah, yeah. And so. and so far sounds as well. First Oxford so far sounds. Yeah, I I ran so far in Oxford for a couple of years, and then handed it on to uh, the much more competent and organised uh, team that now run it. 
so Joanna Frost and yeah. and uh, some really amazingly talented local people, Ian and Paul, who f- who photograph and film it, and um, yeah, so far it's I uh, just such a such a happy thing and a very promising uh, prospect to new musicians starting out getting the first gigs. Um, yeah. Yeah, uh, Count Drachma certainly benefited from it. We've got like 10 so far videos up. Um, yeah, yeah. That's so. amazing. <laughs> you mentioned Paul Paul Whiteman. Yes. Yeah. I find him such a confidence builder. He's such a, a yeah. great guy to be around <laughs> and true. does his bit in the photography and yeah. filming and stuff. Yeah. And I think um, for, yeah, for that period when I was running so far, uh, in some ways it was, um, if I'm ever reflecting about that time, it was the happiest period because it was it saw the sort of the birth of Count Drachma and it's the second album of Stornoway and and then a lot of other collaborations that I've had and I was so busy I was saying yes to everything and don't really know how I managed it in in many other ways it was the most stressful time and the most difficult time to come through and having done it I feel like uh, I know the limits of the the musician's psyche yeah because I know there's only so much uh, one mind can deal with while you're trying to write and create and then organize things so um, it's a period where I can look back on and say right it's, som- it's sometimes good to say yes to everything and then there's always a limit as well yeah yeah um, so yeah so far has uh, some really valuable lessons that it's yeah, taught me. yeah I found from playing music and uh, for the last kind of 10 years um more yeah more in bands and playing gig venues and things rather than um Whitney Youth Club and things I found that there's a lot of admin like no one said you have to do so many so much admin and emails and things it's an interesting yeah. part of music that is left out of the, uh, the rock textbook. story yeah. <laughs> the one of the things I reflect on most often in music is how much of it is uh hidden and uh they they what what I think the stories about music tend to focus on are the positives, the mm. the magic stuff, the the moments where no one knew where that song came from and no one understood why six or seven years work goes into that band. Um, that's the bit the fans don't really need to hear about. You know, they they need to they need to have the escapism and the mystique of music and be able to put on their headphones and uh, have something dreamlike to yeah. be part of. If you sort of, if the music industry tried to tell all the people all the facts all the time about how our music is made uh, and all the the cups of tea and the admin and the fuel that goes into every gig, then it would be incredibly boring for the fan. And each each songwriter is a music fan, really, so... um, is drawn into this mystery and so we all embark on these careers thinking oh well it'll just be magical and I'll <laughs> write a song and then the tour bus rocks you know, up outside yeah it all seems yeah. so shiny on the outside and so um, so complete but actually you talk to any musician who's experienced uh, their first few gigs and you start to build up a picture of how much um, how much work it takes mm. how many other lives you're responsible for yeah. as soon as you take the stage once you've sung a song in front of a crowd you've affected people's lives um, and you've really made some you've taken some steps in your own life 
because you can never you can never sort of go back to um, having that mystique and being that convinced about music you'll always know that actually there's more to it mm. um, so in many ways I wish I could go back to being that 13 year old hearing Pink Floyd for the first time and never having really touched an instrument and if I could go back to that and just stay a music fan forever not get involved in the dark side um, that could be pretty fun but then you know what would life be if, yeah, if we yeah. didn't have all these gigs to talk about and these uh, experiences to talk about yeah. so it's like you have to lose something of that naivety the beautiful naivety of being a music fan if you're going to be a musician as mm-hmm. well but the biggest conundrum at the heart of the industry is how how le- how little of it is actually explained to us yeah. but when we embar- embark on it Oh, I think that's a good Sorry, place to... I can talk to, forever. <laughs> no, that's great. <laughs> well, yeah, thank you very much, Ollie. And, uh, yeah, it was absolutely fascinating. I look forward to the Count Dratmar album yeah. <laughs> that will be made. Thanks for having me, John. Cheers.